We continue our study through the gospel according to Mark, and this morning we look at Mark chapter 11, verses 27 to 33. I've titled this message, Who's the Boss?, which I confess is partly inspired by Tony Danza. But it also rightly fits this showdown between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. Please follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 11, verses 27 to 33. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach the holy ground of your word, we ask for your help. We need your help. Open our eyes to see the glory and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ in the fullness of his authority. Lord, we, because of our fallen nature and because of this fallen world, we are tempted to see authority as a bad thing, and we see so many times the abuse of authority. But help us to see in Jesus a perfect, merciful, compassionate, and deeply good authority. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Why can't I just decide what I want God to be? That was the question asked to me just a couple of weeks ago as I shared the gospel with a young lady who truly seemed to be seeking to get her questions answered. It wasn't that she was outwardly rebellious, but in fact, she was seemingly very humble and very much interested in the answers to her questions. She seemed to appreciate the mercy of God, which I had just preached about right before I talked with her. She wanted to know that God was there in order to help her because she understood that she needed something, someone stronger than herself to help her in the midst of the difficulties of her situation. She was even putting in the effort to read and think and ask questions and likely to pray in order to find the answers that she was really looking for. What tripped her up was not so much the existence of God. In fact, she was willing to make up her own version of God if that's what was best for her. 
What tripped her up was not the existence of God, but what tripped her up was the authority of God. Her struggle is not unique. In fact, it's the exact same struggle that every person who has ever true or has ever lived faces. From the toddler who screams no when mom and dad tell him to do something, to the insurrectionists who storm the Capitol building, and everything in between, the reality is that what man struggles with most, what is at the the core of man's struggle with God is his authority. We use phrases like, who do you think you are? Or, who died and made you king? Or simply, you're not the boss of me. All to express the universal issue that we have all inherited from our father, Adam, who decided that it was not enough to love God, but instead he needed to be made like God. And ever since, mankind universally has been engaged in a battle with God for authority. In today's world, the word authority is often substituted with the word right. And so you have one of the hottest debates today centered on the person's so-called right to do whatever they want with their own body. The inconvenient pregnancy can be terminated by the woman's so-called right to abortion. Or if a man decides that he wants to be a woman, then what right do you have to tell him what to do with his body? But that's the low-hanging fruit, isn't it? That's the easy stuff for us to pick on and highlight. Let's bring it a little closer to home. When a Christian decides they want something bad enough to sin in order to get it, then that too is a rejection of God's authority. Nowhere is this rejection of God's authority more clearly seen than when the Jewish Sanhedrin looked right into the face of God and said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? The showdown between Jesus and the religious leaders was a sight to behold, I'm sure. But it's more than just a historical event rooted in the past. This is more than just a story about the day the leaders tried to take on Jesus. It highlights for us the common problem that every single human being, including us, has before the Lord opens our eyes to the truth of Jesus Christ. As it says in Romans 1, 18 to 22, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, 
have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, it's not that people don't know that God exists. Rather, it is that people do not want God to exist. Because if God exists, that means someone else is in charge. And I can no longer be independent and autonomous. I can no longer make my own decisions and live according to, like the girl I spoke with, whatever God I wish to dream up inside of my head. Because the reality is, that would then make me God. And the God of my creation would be my own puppet to do whatever I wanted it to do. Mankind does not want to acknowledge that God exists because if we acknowledge that God exists, then that means we must submit to him. But as the Lord Jesus Christ has opened our eyes to understand who God is, we've come to know that God is not some ball and chain who loves to suck the fun out of everything. But in fact, God is the true source of life joy and peace that until you know God you don't know life that unless you find your satisfaction and your pleasures in God you will never find satisfaction and you will never find pleasure that lasts you for eternity and so as we come to see this battle between Jesus and the religious leaders. What we come to see is certainly the problem that the religious leaders of Jesus' day had, but that problem highlights for us the problem that every sinner has. And so as we look at this showdown between Jesus and the religious leaders, we work our way through this passage. I think that we'll see three lessons on mankind's natural rejection of God's authority. Three lessons on mankind's natural rejection of God's authority. And I think as we learn these lessons, at the very least, we will also learn that first of all, even though God is rejected by natural man in his unregenerate and unsaved state, in our natural state, the state in which you and I were born into, even though that is true, the reality is that all authority really does belong to him. That Jesus really is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so for the Christian, that reminds us to stand firm, doesn't it? That even though you'll face opposition, and even though the word of God will be questioned just as it was in the garden, nothing has changed, we can rest in the reality that authority belongs to God. And he's delegated that authority to us as his ambassadors. And so even though the world won't receive it unless God opens their eyes, we stand in the authority of God because of the great commission of Jesus Christ. And so we should be encouraged 
as we are reminded of this authority of Jesus. But then secondly, we should also be encouraged as Christians to remember that the word of God is authoritative and that we cannot deviate in any way from it. Meaning, we have to obey Jesus. When my heart says, go this way, but Jesus says, no, go this way, it's not even a choice. I go this way. And that's something that we all know we need to be reminded of every moment of every day because the war with the flesh is still raging. And then finally, if if you're here this morning and you don't live a lifestyle of repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then what you need to come to understand is that that rejection of Jesus, even even if you're in a sort of undecided position, even if you're like, the girl I was speaking with a few weeks ago and you're, you're genuinely seeking, you're asking good questions, it seems that God is leading you through this process, there is no remaining on the fence with Jesus. You must commit to him. There's no neutrality, no neutral position and you never know when the cock is going to end on your life. And so let's learn then these three lessons on mankind's natural rejection of God's authority as we walk through this passage. The first lesson for us is this. Our sin makes us naturally opposed to Jesus. Our sin makes us naturally opposed to Jesus. Look with me at verses 27 and 28. You know what happened in the the day before. Jesus went into the temple, a temple that belongs to him, a temple that he has cursed, a temple that he has done away with, a temple that he demonstrated his righteous anger against. Because rather than being a house of prayer for all nations, they had turned his father's house into a den of robbers. And so Jesus, in all his boldness and courage, goes right back into the den of robbers. And having known what he did just the day before, the religious leaders walk up to him. And verse 27 says, And they came again to Jerusalem, Jesus and the disciples. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus has talked about these, each one of these groups throughout his ministry. In fact, he's given his disciples the prophecy that each one of these groups would be involved in his death. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. The three groups that made up the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. Comprised of 70 men plus the one high priest, 71 men in total, who ruled the religious life of Israel. But their rule was one under the Roman Empire. Nevertheless, Rome let them have a good deal of power, though pretty much everything they did had to be done with the approval of Rome, which was why, rather than killing Jesus themselves, they had to get Rome's approval. And so they took him before Pilate. But now, you remember back from chapter 2, the scribes and the chief priests were already plotting and seeking how to destroy Jesus. And you remember from last week's episode, after Jesus was teaching with authority and the crowd marveled, not, at just, not just at what he did to overturn the tables and to chase people out, but then to teach and to proclaim his word. 
They continued to conspire with themselves how to destroy Jesus. And so it seems that what they're trying to do here is to set a trap for Jesus. He's walking along in the temple, seemingly minding his own business, and they approach him and they ask him two questions, questions that both focus on his authority, questions that can really be summarized with saying, what gives you the right to do what you just did yesterday? Questions that imply to Jesus that this is their temple and not his. Who is this Galilean who thinks he has the right to come into God's house and to wreak havoc and to get the attention of the people and to teach the people in a way that we have already seen is completely contrary to the way that the religious leaders taught? And so they come to Jesus and they ask him, who do you think you are in doing this? We've already seen throughout the gospel according to Mark who Jesus is. And of course, you know who Jesus is. But let's just do a little quick tour back through it. Go back to Mark chapter 1. One of the main themes of the gospel according to Mark is the authority of Jesus. From the very beginning, Mark announces in chapter 1-1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark begins with the authority of Jesus Christ to announce that he is the Son of God. And what he does then is continually show you by both Jesus' words and his actions that Jesus' authority is absolute But what he also shows you is that the people even recognized this authority, though they didn't fully get it. And even more than the people, the demons recognized his authority. Look at chapter 1, verse 22. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. He casts out a demon. In chapter 1, verse 22, they say, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. This is why people continually come to Jesus in his ministry. Sure, they want to see what he can do. Sure, they want to be healed. But what they want is to hear this teaching that refreshes them and that engages them in a unique way that they've never experienced before. And then drop down to verse 27 of chapter 1. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, there's already been a a buzz, at least in Galilee, about the authority of Jesus. Look over then to Mark chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 10. Jesus is met in this house by friends who tear the roof off and lower their friend down who's paralyzed. And he seizes the opportunity to demonstrate that not only can he heal, but he can forgive sin. Mark chapter 2 verse 10 says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, rise, Pick up your bed 
and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Or flip over to Mark chapter six, verse seven. Even as we skip over Jesus's authority to teach once again, his authority over nature, his authority to bind the strong man. Jesus then delegates this authority to his disciples, to the apostles. Mark 6, 7 says, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So back to Mark chapter 11 and this question from the Sanhedrin, from the religious leaders, what authority does he have? He's God. That's the authority that he has. Sometimes someone can wonder about the authority of God. Like the girl I spoke with, I, I really believe, knowing of course that her heart's wicked until the Lord regenerates it, but I, I think that she was really genuinely looking for answers. Sometimes people can be somewhat innocent in their quest for understanding about Jesus and in, in their questioning of his authority, but I don't think that was the case with these guys. As we saw back in chapter 11, verse 18, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it, the the, what Jesus taught and said about his father's house being corrupted, they heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So what do you do if a new teacher comes to town and the people like him better than you? Well, if you're the religious leaders, then apparently you plot to get rid of him by destroying him. This was not innocent, but do you know what? Neither is any opposition to the authority of Jesus Christ. Flip over to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 paints the Christian worldview for us. And it explains why mankind rebels against God. And it also explains what God does about that rebellion against him. Psalm 2, we'll focus on verse 3 for this first part, but let me read from the beginning. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. How does natural man respond to the authority of God? He says, get off my back, God. But notice, Psalm 2 highlights how the nations and the peoples, the Gentiles, respond to the rule of the Messiah, to the reign and the authority of God. But in our passage, who's responding just like the nations? The spiritually dead Jewish leaders. This is the natural response of mankind to say, you're not going to tell me what to do, God. 
I'm going to do it my way. And maybe I'll sprinkle a little bit of Jesus in every now and then because, you know, that's what we do and it's nice to have the big guy on your side sometimes. But the reality is I'm going to do it my way. But what's God's response to mankind's rejection of his authority? Well, let's keep reading. First of all, he laughs at it. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then secondly, he speaks to them. And what is the content of God's speech to them? He speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. What is God's response to the rebellion of mankind? It's not first to annihilate mankind, though he could rightly do that, couldn't he? God's response to the rebellion of mankind is to send his son. You can rebel all you want, world, but as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And what is the response to the king supposed to be? We'll drop all the way down to verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What is to be mankind's response to, to God's dealing with man's rebellion? The response is to be to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ and to kiss him as an act of all-out submission to him. Now, we certainly see the justice and the wrath of God there, don't we? But do you see the grace and the mercy of God there? God would have been fully vindicated, fully right to say, as for me, I'm going to wipe you out, you bunch of no good rebels. And there would not be an ounce of sin in God for doing that. But what's his response? Well, it's something like John 3.16, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. see, the Father is just as kind and just as compassionate as the Son. How do we know that? Well, didn't we just read that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature? The Father wants the world to be saved through the Son just as much as the Son wants the world to be saved through himself. And so while our, our sin makes us naturally reject the authority of Jesus, God still shows his love. So the question then, friend, is have you responded to the love of God in Jesus Christ? Or will you continue under the false assumption that somehow you can get along without God and just hope that maybe one day when you stand before him, you can apologize profusely. 
The one and only response that the father demands to his son is to kiss the son, lest you perish. But then think of us, think about the encouragement for all those of us who have kissed the son and who continually kiss the son, freely and willingly, who love Jesus Christ who ask ourselves, is he worthy? And the resounding response is, he is. He is worthy. That ought to put some steel in your spine, shouldn't it? The love of God displayed for you in Christ Jesus, and you have it. And it doesn't end. And so the first lesson on that we learn on mankind's natural rejection of God's authority is that our sin makes us naturally opposed to Jesus, but God still sent his son to pay for our rejection of him and to rise from the grave to, to vindicate the son. And the son has preached his gospel to his disciples and the disciples have preached the gospel and it has come all the way down to us and the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes so that we would see the truth about Jesus Christ. That not only does he have all authority, but he is good. There's a second lesson for us as we think about mankind's natural rejection of God's authority. And the second lesson is this. Our sin blinds us to the evidence for Jesus. Our sin blinds us to the evidence for Jesus. Verses 29 to 31 will sort of interrupt halfway into the huddle of the Sanhedrin. And we'll make a third point out of the rest of their conversation in their huddle and their decision to say that they were ignorant about the evidence. But pick it back up in verse 29 of Mark chapter 11. The question has come to Jesus, and what does Jesus do? He says to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? Now, It's common for us to to understand and and sort of to to follow that motto that we have today that you don't answer a question with a question. One of the most frustrating things as a parent, right? Don't answer my question with a question. Just do what I'm telling you to do. Well, but why? (sighs) Yeah. Ultimately, you come down to, because I said so, I'm throwing in the towel. But in Jesus' day, this was a common technique for the rabbis to use because it was a a technique of debate and of teaching that would try to bring the two factious parties, the two warring parties to closer ground with one another. Jesus' question isn't just trying to dodge their question. In fact, he's not dodging their question at all. Jesus' question demonstrates his wisdom and his power and demonstrates his authority even in the question. Notice who takes control of this conversation? Jesus. Notice he gives them two commands. Twice he tells them, answer me. And those are both imperatives. Answer me. Answer me. They've come to confront Jesus, 
but they got more than they were bargained for. So Jesus asks them a question, and notice his question doesn't focus on his authority whatsoever, does it? His question focuses on John. His question is, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, that's shorthand to refer to the entire ministry of John. You remember they called John the Baptist. What was he famous for? Well, his fashion sense for one, his diet for another, but most especially for his preaching and his baptism. His preaching consisted of repentance and his instruction was to be baptized so that the people would be prepared when the Lord came. John was the forerunner for the Messiah, right? Whose ministry, or or who rather, did John's ministry point to? It wasn't himself, was it? It was Jesus. Now they've got a real problem. If they acknowledge that John's ministry and John himself came not from man, but from heaven, which was Jewish shorthand for God. They didn't use the name God, so they would invoke heaven instead of saying God. So, so Jesus is saying, is John, was John from God or was he from man? The ultimate fork in the road, right? Did John have true authority from God or did he just make it up? And he was just this crazy guy out in the wilderness that you know, everybody took their popcorn to to watch the show. Rather than answer Jesus' question immediately, they seem to exercise what could be called wisdom of their own. They huddled up. They discussed it with one another as if they called a conversational timeout. They huddled up together. Most likely it wasn't the whole Sanhedrin. It wasn't all 71 men. It was probably representatives from each part of the Sanhedrin and they talked together about how they should respond and they knew that if they said from heaven then Jesus will get them in his trap and ask them well why didn't you believe him if John's authority was from God and his ministry was from God then why did you not listen to it you of all people the religious leaders who claim to be representatives of God They knew that they were being set up for a trap. But rather than follow where Jesus was leading them, the breadcrumbs that he left for them to walk right into that moment, their very own repentance, to see, wait a minute, we've got it wrong. John had it right. Jesus has it right. Our Messiah is here. Let's celebrate. Rather than do that, they ignored the evidence. And down in verse 33, they simply responded with, we don't know. It's a reality. We know already from the gospel according to Mark. We know this from 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that unless God opens your eyes to the truth about who Jesus is, unless God opens your eyes to 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, you'll never see, you'll never know, you'll never respond, but that does not mean that God does not leave evidence, signs pointing to him everywhere. Isn't this what Mark has been doing for us? I mean, how in the world can a human being walk on water unless that human being is also truly God? How can he speak to a storm, tell it to be quiet, and it actually does? How can he bind the strong man, Satan, cast out demons, and turn a demoniac into a preacher of righteousness? Because he's God. That's how. And yet, they are looking into the face of the Son of God, and they're unwilling to see and acknowledge who he is. Friends, you and I may not look into the face of the Son of God just yet, though we will one day. But in the preaching of the gospel, that is exactly what we do. Every time you and I proclaim the gospel, whether someone wants to acknowledge it or not, it's as though we're looking into the face of the Son of God. It's as though that gospel rings out not just from our mouth, but from the very throne of God with the very same authority as the king. And yet the reality is that sin is so awful and so ugly and so enslaving that it blinds us to the evidence for Jesus. Have your eyes been opened to Jesus? The real Jesus, the biblical Jesus. Not the version of Jesus that wants to make you happy and and healthy and wealthy. Not the version of Jesus that is okay with you holding on to him with one hand and your sin with the other hand. Not that version of Jesus. That one isn't real. The real Jesus. The biblical Jesus. The Jesus who when you taste and see his goodness, you never want anything else. If so, if your eyes have been opened, then you should rejoice because that did not happen because of your wisdom or because you somehow one day decided to just get it together. But just as Jesus taught his disciples after the interaction with the rich young ruler, what is impossible with man to be saved is possible with God. God does the impossible in salvation. So our sin blinds us to the evidence of Jesus, evidence for Jesus, and then finally, third lesson, our sin makes us devote ourselves to what we want most. Our sin makes us devote ourselves to what we want most. Let's drop back into the conversation in the huddle of the Sanhedrin, verse 32. They've already said, if we say he's from heaven, then he'll ask why we didn't believe him. But then verse 32 says, but shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people. For they all held that John really was a prophet. Notice, if you're using a different translation, your translation may have smoothed this out. But notice if you have an ESV, or I think the New American Standard or the Legacy also does this as well. Notice verse 32 says, but shall we say from man? And then it's just a question mark. 
It was a device in the Greek language that Mark used to create this tension. Notice they didn't finish the thought. If we say from man, and they just left it blank to fill in the blank with whatever you might think. If we say from man, then the people will rebel against us. If we say from man, then the people will reject us. And then Mark makes it crystal clear why they responded the way they responded. They were afraid of the people. And why were they afraid of the people? For they all held that John really was a prophet. So the popular opinion of John was that he really truly was a prophet. But the religious leaders, the Jewish Sanhedrin, they didn't believe that John was a prophet. Otherwise, they would have listened to him. They believed that rather than being a prophet from God, John was simply a nuisance. And no doubt they were happy when Herod took his head off because it got rid of the problem and they didn't have to deal with it. What did the people or what did the leaders want most? Well, it could be a number of things. But what they wanted most, as the evidence shows here, was the approval of the people. They didn't want the people to turn against them. Because the people held that John really was a prophet. And so they knew if they said, well, he's from man, then all of a sudden you've got the people rebelling against the leadership. And this is the week of the Passover. You can't have that. Proverbs 29, 25 is true, isn't it? The fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You see, their sin led them to prioritize and prize and treasure their position amongst the people more than the recognition of who Jesus was. They feared man more than they feared God, and that will always get you into trouble. When you find yourself being more concerned about what the people around you think than you do about the audience for one whom you must live for, the one who made you, not just made you, but made you for himself, when you find that you're more worried about what people around you think about you or decisions you may make, then you will always ensnare yourself into more and more sin. And so what do the religious leaders do? Well, after the huddle, they break and they answer Jesus in verse 33, we do not know. Seriously? We don't know? The religious leaders of Israel and the best they can do to answer Jesus' question is, oh, that's it? That's all they've got? How are the people supposed to look to these men when all they can say is, I don't know? And that's Jesus' point exactly. Look to the one who's better. Look to the one who has authority. Look to the one who demonstrates that, that authority in the very questions that he asks, who demonstrates his authority in the reality that he took over the conversation just like that.
it was a temptation for the Sanhedrin to care more about what people thought. And don't you find that you're tempted to care about the very same thing? Well, if I do this, what are the people going to say? Well, if I don't do this, what are they going to think of me? Well, if I wear that, then everybody's going to think I'm unaware of what you're supposed to wear. I mean, the reality is that the fear of man grips our heart in millions of ways, right? What's the one solution to the fear of man? Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Care more about what the Lord's opinion is than you do about other people's opinions. You'll notice that these men are dead in their sins and so they have no idea the trap that they're falling into. But even those of us who are alive in Christ can still fall into this very same trap, can't we? That's why we have to battle our sin. And that's why we need to understand that in order to battle sin, it's not just that you have to muster up the personal discipline or the self-control to make the right decision. To battle our sin, you have to decide who you love more, Jesus or yourself. That's the question. Why do people do what they do? Because they want to. Because they desire something and they act out of this desire. This is James 1, his explanation of the process of sin. Desire grows and it gives birth to sin. And when sin is conceived, it brings forth death. Brothers and sisters, we have to be careful that what we want more than anything all the time is not just to obey Jesus, but as a byproduct of this, what we need to want, what we must want all the time is to love God through Jesus Christ. Not just get it together and do what he says because he says so, but do what he says because he's shown you such great love. And he's changed your heart to, to no longer hate him, but now love him. And unless we have an all-encompassing, all-absorbing love for God in Jesus Christ, then we will always make decisions that displease him and that choose a lesser satisfaction in the moment than the greater satisfaction of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the reality is nothing satisfies like Jesus satisfies. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. Everyone who drinks from him will never thirst. And so the problem with, with me then, ha having drunk from Jesus Christ and having been seeking to be continually dependent on Jesus Christ, the problem for me when I thirst for something else, it turns out is not with God, not with him, but it's with me. It's that I don't know him well enough. What's the solution to wanting to love God more? Know God more. 
because you can't rightly know him without falling head over heels in love with him. That's why he made you. But you'll notice the men respond to Jesus with, we don't know. And then Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus' response demonstrates that if someone is unwilling to commit to Jesus, Jesus will not commit himself to that person. Jesus says, all right, if you don't want to talk it through, if you don't want to acknowledge my authority, then I'm not going to show myself to you. You see, friend, that's the danger of constantly being within the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ and never repenting and never believing in the gospel. Sooner or later, the time will come when Jesus says, okay, you don't want me, then have your sin. If that's really what you want, if that's really what satisfies you, then have at it. The Lord is merciful and gracious, but the Lord will not pardon the guilty. Instead, he gives his, in a demonstration of his mercy and a demonstration of his grace, he gives his gospel. Notice that when they question his authority, Jesus could have done any number of things to demonstrate his authority, right? By what authority do I do these things? Bam, lightning bolts. Take that. By what authority do I do these things? Open up the ground, swallow you up like the sons of Korah. Bam, there's my authority. But that's not how he did it, is it? You see, because the authority of God rests more so in the word of God than the works of God. What has Jesus left his church with? I mean, I'm not opening up the ground to swallow anybody up to demonstrate that Jesus is all powerful, are you? I've prayed for people to be healed of things and then they died and went to see the Lord. And it's not as though the Lord can't do something miraculous and wonderful and amazing, but what the Lord says now is that you must respond to the preaching of the gospel. If you won't believe his words, then you could see any number of miracles and you still wouldn't believe it. So the right response is to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ by living a lifestyle of repentance and believing in the gospel every moment of every day just like Jesus came preaching. So what should we do with this? We've already, I think, gotten a number of applications, but just in case you missed it, let me give you three. First response, first application that I specifically want to highlight for you is number one, repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And remember that that's not a, I did it in the past sort of a thing. I'm safe now. I can do whatever I want sort of a thing. That's in every moment of every day. Always repenting, always believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because you'll be sinning as you live your life. And if not, If you don't think so, read 1 John 1. And John will tell you that you're a liar. 
But he'll also tell you that if you confess your sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all righteousness. He'll tell you in chapter 2 that he wrote so that we might not sin, but if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Hold on to him, friend. Hold on to him. Secondly, faithfully preach the gospel. Faithfully preach the gospel. A good number of us, though not everyone in here, but a good number of us have recognized the authority of Jesus. And you're maybe wondering, what, what am I, I mean, I know Jesus is authoritative. I know he's the king of kings. What am I supposed to do with that? Stand in that authority. What did Jesus say before he ascended into heaven? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Sometimes we might be tempted when the world engages us with everything they have to tell us to be quiet, to tell us that we have no right to speak. You might be tempted to think, well, maybe I should just let off a little bit. Maybe it is my opinion. No, it's not. You speak the word of God with boldness. You would do it with kindness and gentleness, but you speak it with boldness and you stand on the word of God because you care more about what God thinks than what people think. So faithfully preach the gospel and then number three, lovingly obey Jesus. We can't preach the gospel and then live as though the gospel has no bearing on our own lives personally. If what I want is a deviation from the word of God, then I have to kill what I want and replace it with a better want to please God. That's a battle that we fight every day. And here's the reality. If you stop fighting that battle, you will lose it. You will lose it. So lovingly obey Jesus because he has loved you so greatly. He has paid for your sins. He has risen from the grave. He has ascended into heaven and he has promised you that he will come back to get you one day. He has promised that you will see him face to face one day. In his classic book, which was initially a radio broadcast called Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said this, and I think it's a fitting end to our meditation on the authority of Jesus. He says, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let Christ take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. There must be a real giving up of the self. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed give you a real personality. But you must not go to him for the sake of that. As long as your own personality is what you are bothering about, you are not going to him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. 
Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so good. Help us to see you. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.